we'll come to the observed effect. <laughs> A podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas <laughs> and at least one good story. Episode 98, Writ in Water, Rome, where John died. Just overlooking the Spanish steppes in the heart of Italy's capital is a room with a death mask. It was made from plaster, set on the face of one of England's greatest poets in the moments after he succumbed to tuberculosis. John Keats was only 25, far from his loved ones, when his young death assured his fame. When I came to the museum that is now in that apartment, dedicated to his and other romantic poets' works, I happened to bring a new friend with me, El Taj, whom I met in a migrant camp in an abandoned train station. El Taj is a poet from Sudan who crossed the Mediterranean by boat from Libya to try to publish in Europe. You can listen to his story in episode 92. Fortunately, the director of the museum Dr. Giuseppe Albano put off our planned meeting so that I could show El Taj the rooms that day, but he agreed to meet later by video to answer my question. What brought Keats to Rome? Can you describe what John Keats would have looked like when he arrived in Rome? I usually ask strangers that I meet to describe their own appearance, but uh, in this case, Let's just talk about his appearance. <laughs> I think well, it took nearly two months for Keats to arrive in Rome. Um, he set sail on the, the 18th of September, 1820, from London, and he didn't arrive in Rome until the 15th of November, 1820. Wow. So it was a long, a long trip by boat. He was, of course, desperately ill. Um, He'd been ill since uh, since February of 1820, of that earlier that year, um, when he first had the first signs of tuberculosis. Um, two months to get there, very ill, um, terrible conditions on the boat. This was not a luxury cruise <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. It was a it was quite difficult conditions, cramped, cramped and packed. And um, he, he obviously traveled with Joseph Seven, the artist uh, who, who took care of him, but it was, it, was, it was difficult for them. They didn't have very much money. Um, they arrived in Naples the end of October. They were quarantined, so they couldn't get off the boat. Wow. <laughs> because there was a, a typhus outbreak, um, so uh, they just couldn't get off. Then, well, it, 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 luckily, Keats didn't have typhus, so he didn't have that. But uh, well, I, uh, they, they I, had to see him. That, that begs the question: How did uh, Italians feel about um, consumptives flocking into their country? <laughs> well, well, actually, there were many people had come to 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 Italy. For, I suppose, in today's language, it would be considered health tourism. 
So people, yeah, you're right, people were flocking to Italy. And in fact, Keats came to Italy. Keats chose Italy, he chose Rome, and he chose Piazza di Spagna, where he ended up because of the advice of his doctor, following the advice of James Clark, his, his doctor, who had actually that very year, 1820, published um, a book, a, 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 link, a, a book length report on his findings, on his research on the health of consumptives. And he decided that Piazza di Spagna was actually one of the very place, places to come to uh, for, for consumptives because it was a relative, had relatively clean air and was a high part of the city. So Italians were used to it. They, they were used to this kind of tourism. But nonetheless, there were very strict laws about um, consumptives. And um, after they died, according to Vatican law at that time, everything that they might have touched or come into contact with had to be burned. Wow. So Keats's, according to Joseph Seven, the artist who accompanied uh, Keats to Rome, uh, their landlady, Anna Angeletti, actually, when she discovered this, she took some almost sadistic pleasure in, in reminding him that everything would have to be burned and therefore replaced. So she saw it as a redecorating opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so for every um, downside, for every disadvantage, there's always a, a positive thing. She claimed it all back from Joseph Seven. <laughs> so, so yeah, people were used to that. And um, Keats must, he was in a pretty bad state, uh, taking almost two months to get to Rome. But also, we don't, we don't have descriptions from Joseph Seven on Keats's physical appearance at this time. But um, we obviously... If we look at how other consumptives were looked, must have looked, they, according to Susan Sontag, for example, in her, her work on illness as a metaphor, she describes the ways in which consumptives are enervated and energized, mm. particularly the point of death, rosy cheeks, and they get this flushed and quite attractive look. Ironically, they can look quite um, seductive. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a strange thing to say. <laughs> But I like to think of totally bedraggled and a death story. I like, I like to think of him as being flush-faced and attractive when he arrived in Rome. But who knows, really? <laughs> I think it's if we look at later writers, I mean, because there, lots of people had consumption in the 19th century, of course, and lots of writers were living with it. And, and, um, and some lived longer than Keats and were able to, to write about it um, and to reflect on it. And... Uh, if we, if we go up to the end of the 19th century, Robert Louis Stevenson, for example, the, the Scottish writer, he, mm. he lived very, you know, he lived to the relatively healthy age of 36 with, with the disease. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and this is, seems to be a, a, common, a common observation that they kind of get this flushed, glowing look. Mm. But often that's bad news. I suppose we might call it an energized look, but that's often bad news because that means they are nearing the end. Mm. And I think, even though it was a very long journey for Keats to get to Rome, I think he must have been very excited to finally get here. So there is that to consider. And um, well, what, what, how, how were his how were his spirits? Was he expecting to be healed, or was he pretty fatalistic? Um, we don't. Um, yeah, we unfortunately we don't have much many of Keats's own words from this period of his life, because almost all of the words that Keats said and uh, all of his deeds, all of his, um, all of the things that he reflected on, all the things that he reported, are reported through Joseph Seven. We get very little of, of what Keats actually thought mm. and wrote at this time. We have some letters. We have um, quite a famous letter that Keats wrote to, um, 
to Fanny Brown's mother. Fanny Brown was the love of his life. And he wrote a, a letter to her mother. He couldn't bring himself to write a letter to Fanny herself. So he wrote a letter to, to her mother from the port of Naples. And we have Keats's very last letter, which is a really, really um, tortured confessional letter. And uh, you, can, you can really feel the suffering in the words. And that's written to his friend, Charles Brown. And that's sent on the, the 30th of November that you're from Rome. But apart from those scraps, we get very, very little of, of Keats's own words. Mm. But we get lots from, from Joseph Seven, who reports how Keats was, was feeling. And I think it seems that Keats was excited to be in Rome. Um, as I said, they, were, they had a long journey, they had a long voyage, they were quarantined at Naples, and then had to come by coach all the way up from Naples wow. to Rome. So, yes, I think he was excited. And Seven, um, in those first few days, he, he did some very good things for Keats. He hired a horse and cart, for example, so that they could wander around, take a drive around, ride around the Piazza di Spagna. Keats was able to walk um, along the Pincho Hill. Pincho is the, the hill at the top of the so-called Spanish Steps. Mm. It's not one of these seven hills of Rome, but it has the advantage of still being a hill. <laughs> so you can see that it's not been flattened like some of the others. So Keats was able to, to walk and to ride around there. Um, so I think he was excited about that um, and excited to be in Rome. But then on the, the 10th of December, so he arrives on the 15th of November, but on the 10th of December, so just a few weeks later, he has a pretty horrific lung hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. And down, downhill after that. Mm. Can you describe what he would have found at the Spanish Steps when he arrived there and what that uh, building is like in that room uh, or what it was like at that time in that neighborhood? The, the building, so according to Joseph Seven's report, um, they arrive through the, uh, the gate at San Giovanni, the Lateran Gate, one of the, the southern entries, historic entries into the city. He doesn't take the, he doesn't arrive in Rome through the, the, the typical grand tourist entrance from the Porta del Popolo. I'll say a bit more about that later if, if you'd like. And uh, they make their way directly by coach past the Colosseum, which is, which is noted by Seven, straight to Piazza di Spagna. So there's not very much time for sightseeing. They come mm. straight here on doctor's mm. orders, of course. It was a Scottish doctor, John, James Clark, who mm. also lived in Piazza di Spagna. Mm. He recommended they come straight there to the house that he had found for them. The house, uh, number 26 Piazza di Spagna, it's on the, the right foot of the, the Spanish steps, is a very simple building, a very humble building. It's not, um, if you know anything about Roman architecture, this is not a grand palazzo. It's a very simple um, Roman vernacular building, a palazzetto, if you like, the diminutive form. Um, it has an interesting history, goes back, which goes back over 300 years, which is quite modern in Roman terms, of course. <laughs> uh, but a very, very simple structure. It had been modernized, uh, gentrified, if you like, by the architect, the same architect who, who designed the Spanish Steps, Francesco mm. de Sanctis. So it had been embellished by that architect, but it's a very simple structure underneath. And um, unfortunately, we don't have any of Keats's descriptions of the building. Um, or indeed of the steps. I should point out that the steps nowadays are a huge tourist draw, of course. People come from all over the world to see those steps and to take selfies on them. It didn't <laughs> seem to be the case in Keats's time. Tourists who did come to Rome were more interested in the ruins. Yeah. The, the classical past, they weren't so interested in the Baroque 
monuments like the, the Spanish Steps. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, it would have been very busy. Lots of people, flower sellers, um, artists, models waiting to be hired. These are described by in contemporary accounts, also mm. very vividly, just three decades later by Charles Dickens when he came to Rome. So there was life on the steps. It was very colourful and very crowded. And there were lots of people, of course, residing in that area. It was a popular area for tourists to stay mm. in. Um, so that, that's what that's the, the world of Rome that Keats would have would have seen when he arrived. Um, and I think he felt at home there because that's something that Seven describes. They, 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 they felt happy to be there and they felt at once at home. And they were taken to the, the second floor of the building, um, which was occupied by a lady called Anna Angeletti. She basically started renting out rooms to tourists from about 1815, mm -hmm. which is an interesting date because that is the date that... Um, well, it was after the Battle of Waterloo, the, the, the second and final fall of Napoleon, and tourism starts coming back again en masse to the city of Rome, because during the Napoleonic years, there'd been a, a serious blow to cultural tourism, to any kind of tourism. People couldn't come, especially British tourists, were still yeah. because they were at war with France. Um, but after 1815, that area, particularly Piazza di Spagna, because it's very close to one of the entry points to the city, Piazza del Popolo, there's a boom in tourism and many of these simple houses, palazzetti, open up as pensioni, mm. lodging houses, guest houses. And that's exactly the house to which John Keats came. And the Anna Angeletti had capitalized on this new wave of tourism by letting out rooms. And she had even more rooms to let from 1820, because, which is the year that Keats came to Rome, because her husband died that year. Her husband was, a, was an engraver an etcher of plates for prints. He had a workshop on the ground floor. And this area, Piazza di Spagna, was very popular with tourists, but also popular with artists and artisans. They were the lifeblood of mm. the area. So he, the, he dies and um, leaving more space on the, the, the floor occupied by the family to have even more rooms. So this is precisely why Anna Angeletti had more space to accommodate Joseph Seven and John Keats on the floor where the family resided. And she split the apartment in two. If you come to the museum today, you'll see the main room, which we call the Salone, and you'll see an archway there. And on the eastern side of the archway, that's where Anna Angeletti and her, her daughter resided. And you can see what was her kitchen, and you can see her living area. And on the western side, that became the, the Keats and Seven apartment. And you'll see John Keats's bedroom, small, extremely simple but with two of the finest views in the center of Rome, because one window looks out over the, the steps and the other over the piazza itself. And you'll also see Joseph Seven's little bedroom as well. But to answer, sorry, I've answered your question in a very long winded way. I'm, I'm sorry about that, but it's um, a very simple building with a very interesting past because it was the, the building had been redesigned by the, the same architect of the steps. And you'll also see um, observant uh, visitors who come to the, the, to the house, if they look up, they might notice some interesting reminders of the, the French past, of the, the so-called Spanish steps and of the area, because you see the, um, the fleur-de-lis on our building, many instances of this, mm. etched into the travertine stone. And you'll also see the, um, the Sun King symbol, a sunburst, which was the symbol of Louis XIV of France. Mm. And that reminds us of the, the, the French connection with the area, with the Spanish steps, which even though we call them Spanish steps, they were in fact um, 
uh, financed and uh, commissioned by, by the French, by Louis XIV. So you will see all these things. And I like to think Keats would have looked up and noticed some of these things. We don't have any reports of him noticing these things. And we, of course, he was extremely ill and happy to, to, to be in his new home. But I like to think of him looking up and noticing some of these things, at least. Mm. So uh, let's step back for a moment. And I want to ask, why is there a museum there now? <laughs> Basically, what, what is the significance of Keats first? Can you explain for anyone listening that is unfamiliar with him, why is he such an important figure that the home where he died became a museum? <laughs> the, the museum is dedicated um, not only to Keats, but also to, to other English romantic writers, principally of the second generation, including Percy Bichelli, of course. Um, and I suppose their relationships with Italy and with Rome, so really the, the collection is dedicated not only to John Keats, even though he is our number one poet, of course, and he is the reason that most of the, the visitors who come to visit us come in the first place. They come to see the room in which John Keats died. It's become almost a place of pilgrimage. But the museum is also um, uh, a testament to the ways in which Italy and Rome uh, have inspired um, generations of English writers in Rome. So that, 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 that's a secondary element to the museum. The John Keats dies there in 1821. For the rest of the 19th century, the apartment and the building continue as a guest house for tourists. Elizabeth Bart Browning came in the 1840s, and of course, like many, she wanted to see the room in which John Keats had died. Mm. Um, in the 1890s, um, a charismatic writer, um, Axel Munter, who was a Swedish, Swedish physician, and writer, he rented the rooms as well, and he stayed there for all of that decade. So it continued as a guest house, but as a kind of, um, I suppose, a, an unofficial museum of sorts, because people wanted to come to see the room in which Keats had died. Mm. And then finally, in 1903, the building is threatened with, with demolition, mm. um, and a luxury hotel is planned for that very site where the building is. Mm. And that's why the Keats Shelley Memorial Association is created in 1903. The first meeting is actually on the 23rd of February 1903, which is the anniversary of Keats's death. Mm. And that's founded with the principal aim of saving the building, um, preventing it from being dem uh, demolished, acquiring the funds required to, to buy the building, to, to acquire it outright, and then eventually to turn it into museum and library dedicated, as I say, not only to Keats, but also to the, the, the second generation English romantic poets. Mm -hmm. But uh, Keats's appeal, well, that's another question altogether. Why Keats? Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's another question. We, I'm always amazed how people from all over the world are, are stirred by Keats's poetry and uh, are fascinated with his, his, his work, but also with his life as well. It's, uh, we, we have visitors coming from all over the world and it really is um, for them a, a place of a pilgrimage, a secular pilgrimage, um, but certainly spiritual at the same time. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm, one of, it's incredible. I'm one of them. Yes. I, I made my yeah. pilgrimage when I was 20 uh, <laughs> to that site and I'm so happy that I could come back and, and dig deeper this time. Uh, but but yeah, go ahead, explain what... what uh, I don't know if you can explain what it is about his use of language that made him successful as a poet. 
His language is um, very, it's, it's very beautiful, very mellifluous, very melodic, um, easy to remember. Uh, lots of, we, we have lots, 40% of our visitors are Italian school children, and they, <laughs> and, and they still, in Italian schools, they still, I'm not sure if they're encouraged or forced to do it, but they can still memorize whole lines and stanzas of Keats, and I think that's, that's a beautiful thing, because if you remember these things when you're young, you, you remember them forever, really, they stay with you forever. Um, so it's, a, it's an attractive language. You know, we think of it as being very poetic now, but in Keats's time, that was considered fresh and dynamic. It wasn't staid and self-consciously neoclassical like mm. many of his the predecessors. It was a very dynamic and uh, vivid language. And, um, and I think we, we still get a sense of that today. It's also easy to translate, which is another advantage of, of Keats. I'm always surprised when I, when I read Keats in Italian, for example, I'm always surprised just how well he translates into Italian. Um, and I expect that to be the, the same with other Romance languages and possibly with many other languages in the world. Um, his poetry has a directness and a, a vivacity. It's not overly philosophical, which is you know, something that could be said of Keats's poetry of Shelley's poetry, for example. Um, it's not overly satirical or, um, I suppose, cynical is maybe not the right word to use, but yes, yeah, it's, it's not, um, you know, it, it's not overly satirical like Byron's, for example. It's very fresh. Yeah, and it's very and earnest and sincere. It's very earnest, yes. It's also, uh, he's not a religious poet, but he is very sensual and very spiritual in many ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, People from all over the world can appreciate that and can get something from that. Mm -hmm. But of course, why the, the attraction to Keats is also something to do with his life and the, the fact that he died so young at the age of 25, the fact that he was ill, the fact that he had to leave the love of his, his short life to come to Rome. All of those things, of course, add to the, um, to the, the charm and the, um, the myths around Keats, the, yeah, the mythology, if you like, around Keats. All of those things add to it. Um, what, what about you? How did you get uh, pulled into the life of these poets? Uh, was it a, an interest or, you know, did you study museumology or? Uh... <laughs> I studied, uh, I, I studied Keats as an undergraduate. So I did a, an undergraduate degree in English literature, a first degree in English literature. And then I did a master's and a, a PhD. But my PhD was on the Victorian period, Victorian poets. And so I came back to Keats many years later when, when I got this job. Yeah, yeah. But I'd done, in, pre, in a previous life, I'd done lots of other interesting jobs. I, um, when I was finishing my PhD, I, I would teach, and I would teach uh, English. This was my summer job, teaching English to Italian students. And um, often we would use poetry, little bits of poetry. And I was always amazed how much they, they knew about English poetry, and particularly the Romantic period. Mm. So Keats sometimes would, would enter those discussions. But it wasn't until years later when I came to this particular job that um, I had to, uh, to brush up my knowledge of Keats. And, uh, <laughs> and I was glad that I did. Um, although, if, you know, to be very, very honest, it was, it, it was more Shelley. At the time, I, was more, I knew far more about Shelley before I came to work here. Yeah. I had studied Shelley in, in, far more, in far more detail than I had Keats. So yeah. I had to learn a lot about Keats coming to work here. Yeah. And talk a little more about what it's like to greet so many 
pilgrims uh <laughs> and did, do any um stand out in your memory well we have yeah we we have people from all over the world i mean it's uh, it's i suppose the the, the the reach of the romantic was because they wrote in english and english is a, a globally dominant language mm. with a globally dominant literature of course <laughs> um, but i think that's only part of it so i think people really do are affected by Keats and, and they want to find out more about Keats's story and they want to see the room in which Keats died. It's not just because it's an, he, he happened to write in English. And then, um, of course, we have many, many um, Anglophone visitors, mm. many Americans that come. Some, sometimes we have American visitors who, who, who tell us that they, this is the reason they came to Rome. Yeah. They came to see Keats's room. They didn't come for the Colosseum. <laughs> or the Baroque and churches and Renaissance palaces, they came to see Keats's room and it's, it's quite incredible. And uh, we have lots of uh, pilgrims um, from East Asia and many, many from South Asia that come as well. So the, the reach is far and wide. And it's a, the Keats apartment is a very small place and we try not to, and we try not to Visitors appreciate being on their own and having that quality, silent time. It's a very silent museum in that respect. Unless we have school groups coming. When there are no school groups, it's a very silent space. And we don't like necessarily to talk to people while they're in the kids room or the seven room because it's a real golden opportunity to have some quiet time and reflect on kids' experience and um, and look out the windows and see the chaos and the, the hustle and bustle of the piazza and the steps and just the, the interior quietness. It's, it's quite a special experience. So, well, and but I often see people on the stairs coming up and down and, and talk to them on the stairs and they tell us their stories. Well, also, really quick, can you describe the death mask and the effect that it has on people? We, we have two masks in the, the museum on display. One is a a life mask and the other is is the death the death mask that you you probably noticed and uh, and the death mask is in the Keats room on display next to the the bed and people i think people look at their life mask they come from seeing the life mask in the in the um the Joseph Seven bedroom where Keats is recognizably Keats and his, he has a very handsome face, very high cheekbones and very symmetrical. And they come into the, the Keats room and see the, it's the same face, but there's this sunkenness about it and the sadness. And I, but does it make people feel sad? I'm not sure if it does. Uh, most people report that there's something positive about the woman and they feel, they feel positive. There's, a, there's an energy, but it's not a, it's not a gloomy one. Mm. That's what most people tell me. It's fascinating to me to learn that the silence is by design to some extent because uh, it's very noticeable. I mean, of course, every museum has some amount of silence, but uh, it is a kind of hallowed space. You know, you feel an awe and that I think comes in part from the silence. So that's fascinating that you're... I think you're right. And, space. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and actually, we've even seen, for example, we sometimes have boisterous um, well, very excited and excitable school groups coming. But there is a hush that falls upon them. Even the most boisterous 18-year-old <laughs> boy enters the kitchen. And there is a, I, I'd like to think of it as a civilizing hush. <laughs> 
that's quite a great turn of phrase that might end up being the title of this episode. <laughs> uh, I interrupted you a moment ago. You were just about to tell some of the stories people tell you in passing on the stairs. Well, they tell us their life stories and they tell <laughs> us about them coming to, to Rome. And, uh, and it, you know, it's the experience of Rome is not always a positive one for, for tourists or for pilgrims. They, they sometimes feel that um, they're not treated very well. People are not, not as friendly as they could be. And uh, so we always try to be very friendly and very welcoming to everybody who comes to the Gates Shelley House. I mean, we, we really want to create a, a very welcoming atmosphere. So if people stop me on the stairs, I will always make time to talk to them. And, uh, and that goes for all of the staff. We, we have very friendly staff. You probably saw some of our staff when, when, when you came. Absolutely. And they, they always like to, to talk to people. And, um, and people just sit and read as well. People, we have, obviously, you know, we, have, we have a historic library that um, the books are not, I mean, they're, they're all not shelves, but they, they can't be taken. But we have display copies of, of, of major works and of, of Keith Shelley and, and others. And people like to just sit and relax and read and, and enjoy that time. And um, so it's not, it's not all talk, but people do, people do sit and, and, you know, and read. And they can also read out on the terrace as well. But when they do talk, they, they tend to open up and, and tell us about all the experiences that the, the hotels, <laughs> the taxis, <laughs> taxi fares, and uh, they ask us, you know, what are the best restaurants to go to? <laughs> yeah, they, they, it tells about that. But, but the, the most recurring story is how they long to come to visit the museum. Mm. And they will yeah. maybe reflect on their, the first time they read Keats or the first, time they, yeah, the first time they studied Keats at school and the poems they remember. And they will describe their visits to the non-Catholic cemetery. We, all, we, we often encourage visitors to go there afterwards. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, the non-Catholic cemetery is a, a cemetery on the... Well, the in its day, the edge of town. It's no longer in the edge of town, but it's um, a cemetery where non-Catholic Christians and others, because they're also Buddhists, Jewish, and Muslim <laughs> burials there as well. So it's not just a uh, Christian. In fact, it used to be called very um, mistakenly the, the Protestant cemetery, but that, that's, that's not good because also Orthodox and, and other Christians there as well. In fact, everyone's buried there, just non-Catholics. So because of um, quite strict Vatican laws, uh, non-Catholics couldn't be buried within the city walls, but it's literally just outside the Aurelian wall. Mm. And um, which is one of the, the, the which is the, the main city wall of Rome. But it's a, a very peaceful, very tranquil place. It's the place that John Keats was buried. It had been active as a cemetery for about a century by the time Keats was buried there. So the, he wasn't the first to be buried there, but he is buried in the oldest part of the cemetery, which in the town we call the Parte Antica, the, the ancient part, in the shadow of the pyramid of um, Caius Cestius, or Caius Cestius, the an ancient Roman general. And it's a, a big travertine, pyramid, a small version of the, the ancient pyramids you would see in, in Egypt. And uh, I suppose that was the very first burial, but then centuries later, <laughs> non-Christians were, were also buried there in the shadow of this pyramid. And uh, just a year later, well, a year and a half later, Percy Bysshe Shelley, um, another principal 
poet of the second generation English romantics, was also buried in the cemetery as well. He died in Italy and he's buried not in the same section as Keats, but in the what we call the old part of the cemetery. So there's the ancient part where Keats is buried, then there's the old part where Shelley is buried. And there's a whole host of other interesting graves in that cemetery. It's a very peaceful place, a very beautiful place, but also a very sad place because it's almost like an encyclopedia of, of, of names of foreigners who, many of them famous, who went to Rome, who lived in Rome, but didn't intend on dying there. <laughs> so it's quite a sad place as well. Um, buried next to, to Shelley, there's, well, there's Edward Trelawney, um, buried next to who, who was an interesting character from the, the, the Shelley and Byron circle. And uh, buried next to, jo to John Keats, and joining him many, many decades later was Joseph Seven, of course. You also see Seven's grave there. But you see many others there. Um, and it's, it does have a sadness about it. But it's like the house, like the Keats Shelley house, before it became a museum, the, the non-Catholic cemetery was a place um, for pilgrims, we're going back to this word again, people who wanted to see the place that Keats and also Shelley were buried. And Oscar Wilde, for example, he when he visited Rome, he visited the, the cemetery and he wrote a sonnet on the grave of Keats. Mm. And he described the cemetery as being the holiest place in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, is before Wilde converted to Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you also talk about the epitaph on Keats's tombstone? The epitaph... Uh, on Keats's tombstone, there, there was supposed to be only nine words, um, and that is the epitaph. And these nine words, um, here lies one whose name was written in water, were the last words, that, well, not the very last words that Severn reported Keats is saying, because we also have his dying words, but the last, let's say, the last poetic words, the last words that Keats wrote, if you like, as a poem, even though he physically didn't write them down, he reported them to seven. So they are in some ways Keats's last poem. Hmm. The sad thing is that uh, well, they, they, were, they were to be according to Keats's wishes. And Keats, um, we, we have seven reporting this, documenting this quite carefully. They reported to, to seven by Keats on the 14th of February, 1821. Keats tells seven, the words, these very words that should be on his tombstone. The sad thing is that these are not the only words on, on Keats's tombstone. In fact, there are many, many other words which were mm. added later, um, words which were um, concocted, if you like, by, by Joseph Seven and Charles Brown, Keats's childhood friend. Um, I think they were embarrassed by the starkness mm. of the epitaph. To have no name on it, nothing at all, just here lies one whose name was written water. I think they were, it's not that they didn't want to carry out Keats's wishes. I think they were just a little bit, um, perhaps even shocked by it. It's, it's quite something, isn't it, to have all those words. What, what, what was he thinking? Why did he want that? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, he was a poet to the end. Um, he was a poet to the end. So the fact that he's, you know, 200 years later, we're still trying to think about what was he thinking, I think. I think, you know, he was very clever in that respect. Um, you know, he was, these are very interesting, ambiguous words, and they've kept people speculating for 200 years. Um, what was he thinking? Well, there have been a number of theories about this. Um, some people 
think there's a kind of a, a cynicism in those words. You know, my name is destined to disappear, to disappear like water, leave no trace, written water. I'm, I'm not sure if I believe that. Other people think that, um, you know, written water, going into, into nature, into the water, water is ephemeral, but it's also eternal. Mm. So maybe there's a sense that it will be destined to become one with nature, one with the earth. Mm. I'm not sure. Um, incidentally, I've just <laughs> I've just written an essay on which has a an interesting, it's obviously interesting new theory on on this. Um, so if you want to um, to wait for that, it's going to be out very soon in a book called uh, Kits's Places, published by um, Paul Graf Macmillan. Um, ah. And it's the closing chapter in this book, it's chapter 13, and it has an interesting, well, to my mind, interesting new perspective on, on Keats's tombstone. So, so I won't tell you what I think it means, but yeah. you can look forward to this. That's, that's a fantastic it's, teaser. <laughs> well, it's, it has kept people speculating for 200 years. Let's, mm. let's, and I, I'm not sure we've really got to the bottom of it. But why should we? I mean, poems can have, they're enriched with many layers of meaning. Why, why should it just have one particular meaning? So uh, that's a great segue into the last few questions on Keats. Um, I'm interested in that book, Keats's Places. Uh, yes, this may be. Uh, go, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, it's a collection of of, of essays by different um, by different writers, uh, many of them scholars of, of Keats, but some curators. Um, there's also an essay on the, the House in Hampstead, for example, the, the Keats House in Hampstead. But they are. It's a it's a book which explores the places that defined Keats's life. Mm. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it will be out um, in the next couple of months this year anyway. Yeah. Well, my podcast is about how place defines us and how changing places affects us and our identity. Uh, without giving too much away about the book, maybe you can talk more broadly about the role that travel might have played in Keats's life and his creativity? I think travel was very important for Keats. Um, he, I think the walking tour of Scotland, um, the, you know, I think that was probably one of the most um, decisive things on his life. And he wrote quite a few poems, at least, at least a dozen poems directly inspired by that experience. And um, he also wrote poems um, when he was living in London, when he was living in Hampstead. Um, on his way up to Scotland, he traveled through the Lake District as well. That resulted in some, some poetry. Um, I think the, the, the saddest thing for me is that there's no poetry about Italy or about Rome, <laughs> but there's poetry which mentions Italy prior to coming here. So I, I think that's very sad that uh, there's nothing, nothing about Rome. Mm. Why did he feel such a, why did he have such a fascination for Rome and for Italy? Um, I'm not sure. I think he was, well, he was very excited by um, the classical past. He had, um, he owned some classical books from a, from a young age. He was very good at Latin at school. One of the books that we have in the museum is a, a book, um, a collection of works by Tacitus, the, the Roman historian Tacitus, uh, Orationis Omnis, a collection of historical speeches. And this book belonged to Keats. 
and um, it's signed by him when he was about 15 years old, we think it was his book. He was very good at Latin at school. So he always had a, an admiration for the classics. He was very interested in, in archaeology as well. He went to see the, the Parthenon sculptures, the, the so-called Elgin marbles at the British Museum that resulted in a poem. Mm. The Elgin marbles. So he was very interested in, in archaeology, remnants from the classical past. Of course, the most famous example of that is, of course, the the Urn of course. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so there is that. Uh, but he was also interested in modern Italian as well. He had some. He made some some efforts to to study Italian, to learn Italian. And Italian, of course, was a great literary language, and one that it, whose literature influenced the well poets from the, the English Renaissance onwards, but, but also the Romantics. Keats dabbled in the sonnet. He was very aware of its um, Italianate origins. Um, so there is that. He, we have some early, early works that, um, that mention Italy, that really discuss the lure of Italy. One of his famous early sonnets, Happy as England. Do you know that sonnet? No, no. Where he, it's a very pastoral poem, but a, a complex pastoral poem where Keats describes the pastoral, the, the, the idealized simplicity of English rural life, but then goes on to say that he longs for skies, Italian, and to sit upon an Alp as on a throne, and it's just to lose himself in Italy. I mean, that's what they all wanted to do. They all wanted to travel to Italy. Um, and, and that sonnet, of course, was written just after the, the Battle of Waterloo, so written at a time when the opportunities for travelling to Italy, the, the, the possibilities of travelling to Italy were opening up again because it had been closed for, for so long. So, of course, he wanted to come to Italy. Um, and he wanted to come to Rome because Rome was the, the holy grail, if you like, of the, of the, the so-called Grand Tour. Everybody wanted to come to Rome, particularly from the 1750s onwards when, when Pompeii and um, Herculaneum are discovered. So mm. everybody wants to come and see the ruins. And Rome, of course, has more ruins than anywhere else. So Rome is the place to come from about the 1750s over the next few decades. Rome is the city, well, it's the center of the art world in Europe, but it's the, one, the city in, whose art inspires most of the artists. They couldn't go to Greece at that time. Greece was, well, some people went to Greece, for example, Byron, most famously, but Greece was far more difficult to visit because it, people were frightened to go to Athens because it was under Ottoman control. Mm. So Rome was the best place to come, really. <laughs> and, uh, of course, people wanted to go there, but was Keats any different from others in that respect? Probably not. His reasons for coming to Rome, of course, were more urgent. He came because he really thought that the well, following doctor's orders, he thought that the, the, the Mediterranean climate would alleviate his suffering, just a little bit of sunshine. Mm. And um, that, that was the hope. And uh, he'd had his heart set on coming to Italy for some time. In the summer of 1820, in July 1820, um, Percy Shelley writes to Keats from, from Tuscany, from Pisa, inviting Keats to come and stay with his wife Mary there. But he replies and says no. That um, but he is aware at that time that he would like that he must travel to Italy. He's he's destined to come to Italy just mm. for his health. Mm. Um, and then later that year, it's it's Rome. Rome is the place to come. As I mentioned earlier, on doctor's orders because James Clark had published his his findings, his research that year, which suggested that Rome uh, and Piazza di Spagna in particular were the places to be 
for mm. sufferers from consumption. And it seems crazy to think about it today, but it was a, a relatively healthy neighborhood. So that's why he came. Yeah, yeah. My last question is, of course, what about you? What is your best travel story? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I like to be... I like I like to have everything quite you know planned uh, when I when I travel, um, but I like there to be some surprises on the way. Um, do you want me to give a specific example of a of a travel experience? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I went to to Lebanon in 2016. Wow. That was an incredible experience. Um, I had planned the basics so that nothing could go wrong. I wanted to know that I would, you know, <laughs> what would I do if my airport uh, transfer didn't show up. I wanted to have all my plan B's and plan C's and, and I chose the, my hotels and, and I had some friends there as well. So I, I did have you know, people to help me, but, it, but I just, um, you know, the itinerary was just on a day-to-day basis. I just, I had plans, but I changed my mind. I, I was supposed to spend more time in Beirut. I didn't do that in the end. I ended up uh, hiring a car and going to Biblos and to this wonderful village called um, Betadin in the, the Shuf Mountains. And uh, I had I went to see the um, this wonderful castle called the uh, Musa Castle, which was one of the most inspiring museums I think I've ever visited because there was not very much to see, but people from all over Lebanon seemed to go to this this place called Musa Castle, which is a, a 20th century structure built by a uh, built by somebody called Musa, who, whose dream was to build a castle. So really, this people from all over Lebanon come to see this castle because it represents their dreams and the realization of their impossible dreams. Because this character, Musa, when he was a little boy, apparently everybody's teachers and his parents, everybody told him that he would never be able to live or build, in a, ca- you know, build a castle. It would never happen. So <laughs> this castle is there. It's incredible that people come from all over the place to see it. And um, what else did I do? I, um, I ended up in a, a, an interesting town called um, Sidon. Of course, um, its Arabic name was uh, Saida. And uh, I just got totally lost in Warren of Streets. And uh, I didn't have any Wi-Fi. I didn't, I didn't even have 3G. I had nothing. So that, that, I suppose that for me was an authentic experience. <laughs> totally lost. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're all wanting. <laughs> no Google Maps. <laughs> beautifully said, beautifully said, and, and beautifully told. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for all of this. This is incredible. This is uh, beyond what I uh, hoped for. <laughs> thank you very much. so much Giuseppe and thank you to the musician Dana Goulet you can follow the observer effect on Facebook and at our website theobservereffectpodcast.com don't forget about Altage go back and listen to episode 92 and please 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 make the pilgrimage to Rome and look into Keats's face above the Spanish steps and figure out what he saw As another poet put it, Seamus Haney, 
who reads into distances, reads beyond us. <laughs>